Last 5% Media. On this podcast, we discuss details of crimes that are often violent in nature. In addition, historical audio and original interviews include outdated language to describe sex workers. Listener discretion is advised. You know, people kept saying, you got to write a book about this. You know, I wanted to be rid of it. I felt just filthy. I just wanted to take a shower every night. This is Jim Mitchell. He covered the Hillside Strangler case for L.A. radio and television from the earliest days of the investigation through the final jury verdicts. You know, it was hard. It was hard. And uh, I was glad when it ended. I asked him if he saved any of his notes or files from the more than six years he covered this case. He didn't. Deep six them, yeah. As soon as the case was over, as soon as the thing had been put to bed, I dumped all my files. They might have been yelled at them. The case left psychological scars on everyone in Los Angeles who was old enough to know what was going on around them. The insult that they delivered to the entire community was profound. And they had essentially revealed a deep, dark underpinning. Most people had no idea was there a layer of culture that was so black and so terrible, so frightening, that people are in denial about it. But this was so outrageous. These dark, malevolent characters doing all kinds of harm, hurting innocent people. And that's what I found most troubling about the whole scenario from beginning to end. I'm Joseph Fredota. I first encountered the Hillside Strangler case 30 years ago in my former career as a political opposition researcher. In this podcast, I revisit 10 homicides that terrorized Los Angeles in 1977 and 1978 and the longest murder trial in U.S. history. We didn't want anybody who was analytical. We wanted people who did jobs that didn't involve analyzing anything. I just felt so, like, failed by the system. That was like a smack in the face. I think it was truly the trial of the century. From Last 5% Media, this is Hillside. Chapter 8, A Mother's Daughter. But I remember waking up from weird dreams, like somebody in the room kind of dreams, because I really wanted to get a good night's sleep and think about it, but everything, but, but I didn't realize how much this had affected me. This is Penny Stanley, the former Pan Am flight attendant. The night before I interviewed her for this podcast, she had trouble sleeping. So I started thinking about the trial and thinking about each of the victims and just thinking about looking at his face. And it must have stayed deeper than I thought because I had a terrible, terrible night of sleep, tossing and turning and, and two or three times shaken awake with a, like a startled awake. 
She still remembers the victim's photographs arrayed on a chart each day court was in session where the jury could always see them. It was right next to me. That's what gives me the nightmares because it was their photos. Looks like maybe a high school photo or photos of their faces. And then below that were their bodies. So you could see the before and after. And they were very young. They were very young. I mean, some of them looked like just high school girls. Penny was juror number one in the trial of Angelo Bono. At the time, they said six weeks. At the trial, they, they were projecting six weeks. At six weeks seemed like an eternity to be doing this sort of thing. And then my life changed for the next two and a half years, dramatically. Before Bono's trial began, his defense team held a mock trial in a classroom at UCLA Law School. Defense lawyer Catherine Mader. We brought people that we knew who didn't know much about the case. Mader and lead attorney Gerald Chaliff presented their arguments to the volunteers they'd gathered. We then observed how certain things went over with the various people that were debating the case. And from that, we came up with some ideas about who or what types we wanted on the jury. Those sessions guided Mader and Chalif later in the courtroom as they sorted through 360 people in the jury pool. We didn't want anybody who was analytical. We wanted people who did jobs that didn't involve analyzing anything. Juror Penny Stanley took careful notes throughout the trial. Copious, because it kept me alert, and that's just my style. I'm a note taker. She took notes as experts testified about the fibers recovered from Bono's house, evidence that linked his upholstery shop and home to two of the victims. There were some scientists from Monsanto who came and talked about chemistry and making carpets. I mean, I learned all about making carpets and how much in a run and fibers. When Judge Ronald George ordered the jury to visit each of the sites where someone discovered the victims, Penny took more notes. It was like a field trip from school. We met at the courthouse, and then we'd get into these big vans, and we'd just go to the different sites. It was interesting, but at the same time, viscerally awful, because they were pointing out where a body had been. Before the trial started, Bono's defense team evaluated potential jurors. Here's Catherine Mader again. We didn't want anybody that could put 500 pieces of circumstantial evidence together to form a coherent, proof beyond a reasonable doubt argument. I don't know that we had anybody that had an analytical job on the jury. But when it came to Penny Stanley, the Pan Am flight attendant, they guessed wrong. I liked the math. I liked the scientific stuff. They brought in a lot of scientists, like entomologists. There's some ant thing. I can't remember exactly what. The trial of Angelo Bono lasted a total of 345 days. 
making it the longest murder trial in U.S. history. Altogether, prosecutors and defense lawyers called 392 witnesses. There were more than 1,800 exhibits. The official trial transcript is over 56,000 pages long. This is a day a lot of people thought just would never come, but about an hour ago, the case finally did go to the jury. The 12- On October 20th, 1983, the prosecution rested its case against Angelo Bono, and the jury began its deliberations. Jim Mitchell reported from the courtroom that day. The jury, the 12 jurors and four alternates leaving the courtroom to go to a small deliberation room on the 13th floor where they'll decide the fate of Angelo Bono, the man accused of being the hillside strangler. They heard prosecutor Roger Boren this afternoon describe Bono as a cold, crafty, cunning, cold-blooded, amoral animal. After that, instructions from the judge in the case. It's been two years since this trial began. It's been four years since Angelo Bono was taken into custody. It's been six years since that wave of murders terrified the city. The jury announced its first verdict on October 31, 1983, after deliberating nine days. They found Angelo Bono guilty of murdering Lauren Wagner, a recent high school graduate still living with her parents while she studied to become a paralegal. Prosecutors say physical evidence in the Wagner murder make it their strongest case. The fiber evidence was particularly strong in this particular case. It was a a kind of evidence that you don't often see in any cases. On November 5, 1983, the jury found Angelo Bono guilty of murdering Judy Miller, the streetwise runaway who had found a family of sorts on Hollywood Boulevard. Seven more guilty verdicts followed over the next nine days. Lisa Caston, a hardworking member of a dance troupe about to move to San Francisco to study performing arts. Kimberly Martin, an orphan who took care of her little sister and dreamed about having a big wedding. Christina Weckler, a quiet honors student at Pasadena's Art Center College of Design, who stayed close with her tight-knit family back in the Bay Area. Jane King, a model and aspiring actress whose friends teasingly called her Jupiter Jane. Cindy Hudspeth, a driven community college student who worked two jobs and loved to dance. Dolly Cepeda and Sonia Johnson, friends from junior high just beginning to explore their independence, who went shopping at the nearby mall one day to redecorate their bedrooms. Nine guilty verdicts altogether. The only exception, the only not guilty verdict in the trial of Angela Bono, Yolanda Washington. The jury says Bono is not guilty of killing Yolanda Washington, the first victim discovered in 1977. The verdict didn't surprise Catherine Mader, one of Bono's defense lawyers. I think there were things that were just not fitting the same pattern with Yolanda Washington. I just remember that it wasn't terribly surprising that it was not guilty. Prosecutor Roger Boren agrees. I think we lost Yolanda Washington uh, as a guilty verdict just because it was different than the others more than anything else. It just, you know, it just didn't fit. And the strangulation was different. Didn't have the five-point ligature marks. I think the jurors just gave it up. This is Penny Stanley, juror number one. I think there wasn't enough evidence, physical evidence, you know, the fiber thing and witness. No fiber evidence connected Yolanda to Angela Bono's house or upholstery shop. There were no fingerprints linking Bono to the victim. A music store owner, Ron Lemieux, saw two men abduct Yolanda from a street in Hollywood. 
But the judge ruled that Lemieux had been hypnotized, so he couldn't testify. I think that she just sort of snuck in there, got taken, you know, almost like a silent abduction. So there just wasn't enough. If she should have been included, then uh, I don't know why she wasn't. After the trial, LAPD Detective Bill Williams, the first investigator on the scene of Yolanda's murder, ran into one of the jurors in a grocery store. I wanted to know why he didn't find him guilty on the Yolanda case. That was the, the main thing I was interested in. I didn't get an answer. Yolanda's family wasn't in court when the jury foreman announced the verdict. An LAPD detective told them what happened. A reporter asked Yolanda's mother how she planned to tell her granddaughter, Mika, eight years old at the time, about the verdict. The woman said, we'll explain it to her. They never did. That's just like a smack in the face, you know what I mean? Like, you know, not being found guilty. Mika Mercado, Yolanda's daughter. I say the only good thing that came out of it is because they weren't able to kill anybody else. But other than that, there's no justice. But overall, uh, overall, I mean, they had to appreciate how significant it was. This is Kurt Livesay, the former chief deputy district attorney of Los Angeles County. Losing the one is probably just as important as, as getting the conviction on the other nine. Livesay told me the not guilty verdict in Yolanda Washington's murder proved to him that the jury had carefully weighed the evidence in each case. From the standpoint of being able to argue that this jury understood the instructions, understood the law, and abided by them. That made it much more difficult for defense attorneys to challenge the other verdicts during the appeals process. They tried, but Bono's lawyers failed to overturn any of the guilty verdicts. And uh, I think that family would appreciate to know that, well, he, they didn't convict, but, you know, she was still instrumental in causing the right thing to happen. I shared this argument with Mika. She didn't buy it. It gives an answer, understandable answer, looking at it from a system perspective, you know, of it all. And like I said, I watched so many trials and filed a lot of cases, so I, you know, I kind of get it, how that stuff kind of goes down, you know? But uh, it's just, like, messed up. It's just really messed up, you know? Attorney General uh, Vandy Camp said this afternoon that he was pleased and gratified by the jury's guilty verdict convicting Angelo Bono. Said the John Vandekamp, by this time in the middle of his first term as Attorney General of California, was worried about the political fallout from the case. As L.A. County District Attorney, he'd signed off on a motion to drop all murder charges against Angela Bono. That's why Vandekamp and his top aides tried to spin the verdicts. His office released a statement. It read in part, The evidence ultimately presented and admitted was stronger and more compelling than that which was available when the case was within the jurisdiction of the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. His successor as district attorney, Robert Filibosian, rejected that claim. Well, the evidence was always available. Uh, nothing dropped out of the sky in that case. 
An aide to Vandekamp asked prosecutors Roger Boren and Mike Nash and their chief investigator, a man named Paul Tulliners, to tell the press that new evidence tipped the case against Bono. The men refused to go along. Here's Roger Boren. He kept saying, you had new evidence. I said, no, no, we, no, we didn't. Investigator Tulliners threatened to resign rather than lie about what happened. And he actually said, here, if you want me to do that, you're going to have my badge. After the tenth and final verdict came in, an aide to Vandekamp summoned Boren, Nash, and the investigator to San Francisco, where Vandekamp kept an office. John wants to see us that afternoon. The trot's over. I can't see. What's the hurry getting to San Francisco? The men arrived in the state attorney general's suite a few hours later. And they immediately herded the three of us into the conference room and shut the door. We looked at each other, we looked up. Here's a poorly kept secret. Van de Kamp had installed listening devices to record conversations. He'd also done that when he was a district attorney. There was a tape recorder mechanism installed inside the desk that he could flip a switch and turn on. So Boren, Nash, and the investigator decided to put on a performance of their own. It's been recorded. So we started saying very impolite things about John Van de Kamp. The door opened up immediately. <laughs> Vandekamp handed Boren the memo Roger Kelly wrote in the summer of 1981, detailing perceived weaknesses in the case against Bono and arguing it was unwinnable. He asked me to take the, the memo that Roger Kelly had written and to explain how it was erroneous. And I, I said, what? I said, I think you should ask Roger Kelly to do that. As the session began, Buono, dressed in blue jail overalls, swaggered into the courtroom and sat with his head looking down. On November 18, 1983, Jim Mitchell reported that the jury had reached a decision regarding Angela Bono's punishment. As the court clerk announced the verdict, life without possibility of parole, there was an audible gasp from surprised spectators, but absolutely no reaction from Buono, who kept staring straight ahead. Vandekamp later pointed to the sentence, life without the possibility of parole rather than execution, as proof the jury thought the case against Bono was weak. And the attorney general's office took a fresh look at it and, and convicted the defendant, who did not get death, which always told me the jury had a little problem with the case. If they hadn't, uh, I think that they would have given him the death penalty. But this overlooks Vandekamp's own role in Bono's sentence. Under a plea bargain Vandekamp negotiated in 1979, Kenneth Bianchi avoided the death penalty in exchange for his testimony against his cousin. TV reporter Jim Mitchell tied these threads together. Ironically, if Bono owes his life to anyone, it's Kenneth Bianchi. In a deal struck with prosecutors, Bianchi was allowed to escape the death penalty, accepting a plea of life in prison with the possibility of parole in return for his testimony against Bono. And while jurors are refusing to comment on their reasons, both the defense and the prosecution believe that's why they decided to spare Bono's life. In an interview at the courthouse that day, Prosecutor Roger Boren agreed. It had to do with a kind of a feeling of equity with regard to Kenneth Bianchi, who was equally uh, responsible for these heinous murders and that they felt that it was uh, necessary to treat them equally might have been at least a surface explanation that some of them 
be, well, one guy got it, the other didn't. Judge Ronald George, however, offered another explanation. After a trial lasting more than two years, he said, the jury simply wanted the ordeal to end. You know, I talked after the case was over with, with the bailiffs who had charge of them. So I got the impression that these people were just exhausted and that there were some members who were right away ready to give the death penalty and others said, well, I don't know and we really have to talk. And they just threw in a towel and they were just pushed and they wanted out of there. It was like two days before Thanksgiving. And so towards the very end, it was like, I'm out of here. Juror number one, Penny Stanley, believed Bono deserved the gas chamber. I thought, no, put him away. He doesn't deserve to be alive. But the other jurors were fairer, where they felt that since Bianchi didn't get the death penalty, that he should not, since they were both equally guilty. So that was fair, and I was very able to live with that. After it was all over today, the seven women, five men, agreed to talk with the media, but they wouldn't allow any pictures. Most said they were tired after being sequestered for almost a month. A reporter asked Penny Stanley at the time to share her views on the case. We've been through a lot with each other, and uh, we have great respect for the attorneys and for each other after this trial. If you had to do over, would you do it again? No. Nearly four decades later, I asked the former Pan Am flight attendant what happened next. That was it. Drove off, went home. He just shut the door. I wanted to be back into my wonderful life. I just never talked about it again. I never just walked away from it. And got back on the plane? Oh, yeah. I couldn't wait. I, oh, yeah. And then people would say to me, wow, have you been, have you changed your route? I haven't seen you for a long time. I said, yeah, I was flying to South America or something. You know, just. My name's Ted Rorlick. I was a reporter at the L.A. Times. After the verdicts, a senior editor at the Los Angeles Times called Ted Rorlick into his office. Asked me to take a look at the case to see if the evidence had substantially changed from the time that uh, John Vandekamp essentially abandoned the case to the time when prosecutors Warren and Nash won the conviction. The assignment was open-ended. I mean, it was go make an honest inquiry and assess whether the case had substantially changed or whether the case was basically the same. That's what I did. I took a number of weeks to, to do the inquiry. The reporter interviewed all the major players in this epic case, at least those who would speak with him. I talked to Warren and Nash, Nash mostly, from that duo. I talked to Ron George, the judge. When I approached Vandekamp, I really hadn't formed an opinion as to whether, or or certainly hadn't formed a fixed opinion as to whether Vandekamp had made a misjudgment or not. I think I suspected that he had, but uh, just on the basis of the verdict, but I don't think I had a handle on whether there was substantial new evidence or substantial changed circumstances that allowed Bourne and Nash to uh, win. Rorlick sensed that Vandekamp worried he might come off looking bad in his hometown newspaper. He made time, and we had a lengthy interview uh, in his office, and he was um, 
I would say, you know, moderately defensive, but not angry, not, uh, he kept his typical calm demeanor throughout. L.A. Police Chief Daryl Gates called Vandekamp to tell him he wasn't getting the full story about the evidence and urge him to take a second look. And Vandekamp told me, oh, I did. And he had given it to two senior prosecutors, and he claimed that they had taken a detailed look at it. But when Rorlick interviewed those two unnamed prosecutors in the DA's office, they contradicted Vandekamp. They said they provided nothing more than a casual view of the evidence. These senior prosecutors told me that um, they had taken kind of a cursory look. So there was some sort of a breakdown here in Vandekamp's realm as an administrator. Kenneth Bianchi was an unreliable witness, constantly changing his story or claiming to forget key details. Rorlick's assessment? Vandekamp's approach was to give up. Boren's and Nash's was to treat Bianchi's lies as a problem to be gotten around. That Vandekamp did not take an independent look at Kelly's judgment under those circumstances was, I think, his primary flaw in the handling of this case. Angela Bono's conviction of the Hillside Strangler murders was a triumph for the deputy attorney generals who prosecuted the case, Rorlick wrote, but a political embarrassment for the attorney general himself. The case that might have become known as Judge Ronald George's folly turned, with the jury's verdict, into a case that will be known as Van de Kamp's mistake. The senior editor who assigned me the story disappeared, and his disappeared from these interactions. After weeks of working on the story, Rorlick turned it in. Strange things began to happen in the LA Times newsroom. A more senior editor came up to me and said, you know, I don't understand why we're running this story. Why are we bringing this up? Why don't we wait and see if somebody else brings this up? And then maybe we'll run the story. And I was kind of stunned. No one at the paper would tell him what was going on. I turned to a guy who I knew who was a career civil servant who was very close to Vandekamp within the district attorney's office, who took me for a walk around the block, literally around the criminal courts building, which was across the street from the Times, and uh, told me Vandekamp reached in to the Times and killed the story. And that made sense to me, but there was not much I could do about it, and then the information was quite vague. And I was a new reporter and just kind of threw up my hands. What happens next? What happens next? Nothing happens next. The story is dead. An opposition researcher digs into the background of a candidate for public office, looking for vulnerabilities the other campaign can exploit. Some call it the dark art of American politics. I've always believed you should have some distinctions made between you know, yourself and your other candidate. There are differences of opinion and differences in experience. And there's nothing wrong with doing comparative kinds of advertising. That's John Van de Kamp from an oral history interview. 
1990, he was the Attorney General of California and a leading candidate for governor. I ran an opposition research firm based in Sacramento, California at the time. Another candidate, the man who eventually got elected, hired me to look into Vandekamp's life and record. Every time I went to fundraiser, somebody would pull me aside. This was unbelievable. You know, so there was a lot of buzz about it. Bill Carrick managed Dianne Feinstein's campaign for California governor. Carrick was relatively new to California politics when Feinstein tapped him to run her campaign. But from the moment he took on that role, political insiders told Carrick that Vandekamp's biggest vulnerability was the Hillside Strangler case. I think there were two sort of uh, attitudes. Uh, the original attitude was that this is such a big story that the media is going to make a big deal out of it. And it'll, it'll take care of itself. That was the early on attitude. I, I was always a skeptic of that because you know you never you know you never can predict what the media is going to do for real. You know he he didn't make a tremendous number of mistakes as a public official, but all you need is one like that. Carrick had an off-the-record conversation with one of Vandekamp's closest aides. The message: Feinstein's on track to win the Democratic nomination, so knock it off. We told him that, you know, okay, enough's enough. We're going to have to respond, and we're going to respond, you know, aggressively. Vandekamp's team ignored the warning. So Carrick began assembling a television ad focused on the Hillside Strangler case. Then we read the books. We read all the various clips of the story as it evolved in the Times and the Daily News. Uh, in, the, in the old Herald Examiner, and we and we saw tons of video uh, that was uh, around. We looked at it all. Carrick's thirty-second campaign ad pulled no punches. He showed it to his client and her husband. It wasn't like, oh, we're, we shouldn't do this. It's too much. You know, didn't it get to be? Is it far enough? With a week to go before the primary election, Dianne Feinstein's campaign for governor released a television ad that blasted John Vandekamp for his handling of the Hillside Strangler case. The day John Vandekamp tried to drop murder charges against the Hillside Strangler, the man who raped and murdered 10 women and terrorized Los Angeles. And today, almost a decade later, in the midst of a political campaign, John Vandekamp, who still opposes the death penalty and who takes contributions from the Hillside Strangler's lawyer, finally admits he made a mistake. Make sure you don't make one on Tuesday, June 5th. Minutes after the polls closed on June 5th, 1990, Every major news outlet in California declared Dianne Feinstein the winner of the Democratic primary for governor. Feinstein beat Vandekamp by nearly 300,000 votes, an 11-point landslide. She defeated him among male and female voters and carried 57 out of 58 counties, including his home base, Los Angeles County. After he lost the primary, Vandekamp never ran for office again. And the Hillside Strangler case was always a tough to explain. Years before his death, Vandekamp sat for an oral history interview. Well, I think of the two or three things in my career uh, that you'd like to do over again. Uh, certainly the Hillside Strangler decision, uh, if I had, you know, that's all hindsight. I, 
Yeah. You know, it was a principal decision at the time, but, you know, that I would do that differently today. I remember watching the election returns the night Dianne Feinstein beat John Vandekamp in the Democratic primary for governor. I was disappointed, maybe not for the reason you might suspect. I want to share a secret about political opposition researchers. We love to see our homework in action, in political ads, in debates, on the evening news. It feels like validation. So with some regret, I put my Hillside Strangler files into storage more than 30 years ago. Dianne Feinstein's campaign didn't know everything I had found while digging into the life and record of John Vandekamp. But I give her credit. At last, someone held Vandekamp accountable in a very public way. I think it was truly the trial of the century. Mike Nash, the prosecutor. For years afterwards, when we'd be in certain parts of town, whether it's Hollywood or that, my frame of reference was, oh, that's where Jane King was picked up. That's where Lisa Caston was picked up. Oh, Judy Miller was over here. Going to Dodger Stadium, and I still think about this sometimes, you know? And as you turn up Stadium Way, the first street you see on the right is Landa. That's where a nine-year-old boy discovered the two youngest victims, Dolly Cepeda and Sonia Johnson. It was a lot more pronounced years ago, but now we're, what, 36 years down the road. After the trial ended, Mike Nash and Roger Boren knew they'd leave their jobs soon to become judges themselves. They didn't trust Vandekamp in their absence to competently defend the verdicts during the appeals process. They hatched a plan. If there had to be a retrial, I wanted to have a record that we had control of. So Mike and I agreed, we'll take our copy of the transcripts with us. The transcripts were at Mike's house, and he didn't want them there anymore. And I had the basement. We have about almost 4,000 feet in the basement down here. It's just storage space. So I had them brought here. He saved the more than 50,000 pages of trial transcripts, plus exhibits from the case including records of clues people phoned in to the Hillside Strangler Task Force, and photographs and documents that became evidence in the trial. Here's the trash bin that Bianchi said they threw all the belongings, all the belongings in. That's more photos of the house. You see you have a collection of Bianchi business cards? Yeah, it's right here somewhere. Jim Mitchell, the reporter, covered the Hillside Strangler case beginning October 31, 1977, the day an electrical contractor saw the body of a woman in his front yard in a cul-de-sac in La Crescenta. Mitchell reported from the courthouse on January 9, 1984, as the two men known as the Hillside Stranglers appeared together for the last time. Confessed Strangler Kenneth Bianchi was the first to enter the packed courtroom. He was wearing a conservative blue suit looking more like a businessman than a mass killer. Seconds later, his cousin, Angelo Buono, came in. His jaw clenched tight, circles under his eyes. Because Bianchi failed to testify truthfully in the trial, L.A. County District Attorney Robert Filibosian argued he'd violated his 1979 plea agreement. Filibosian requested Bianchi be returned to Washington State to begin serving time. The judge agreed. And he ordered Kenneth Bianchi, the prosecution's chief witness against Buono, to serve his life sentence in Washington's notorious Walla Walla State Prison. 
He accused Bianchi of attempting to sabotage the case against his cousins. Finally, Judge Ronald George addressed the killers. I would not have the slightest reluctance to impose the death penalty in this case were it within my power to do so. If ever there was a case where the death penalty is appropriate, this is that case. I do not believe that life imprisonment for Angelo Bono and Kenneth Bianchi will accomplish anything worthwhile for society or for them. I'm sure, Mr. Bono and Mr. Bianchi, that you will both probably only get your thrills reliving over and over again the <coughs> tortures and murders of your victims, being incapable, as I believe you to be, of ever feeling any remorse. On September 21st, 2002, in a California prison about 200 miles east of Los Angeles, Angelo Bono died alone in his cell. So, like, I get wind that he died, and I'm like, like, wow. So then I go to the library to read about it. This is Mika Mercado. 25 years earlier, Bono and his cousin Kenneth Bianchi, posing as police officers, abducted her mother, Yolanda Washington, off of a street in Hollywood, and murdered her. Just like fixated on his pictures, fixated on his face. The Los Angeles Times reported Bono died of natural causes. He was 67 years old. That's the part that's a real tough pill to swallow. His death certificate reads, coronary artery arteriosclerosis, heart failure. And then I remember just like, that whole day just feeling like, And I think, well, you know, he had a heart attack. Um, and I was like, that ain't a painful death. Bono died shortly before one in the afternoon. And then the fact that I'm sh pretty sure when he was having those pains, they rushed in his cell and rushed into the infirmary. And it was a doctor there that probably actually tried to help him. And... His body was treated with care. For Mika, the news settled nothing. You know, you ever think about something and then you're like, this would make me feel good. And then that time comes and it's like, it does nothing for me. It doesn't make me feel better. Some people would probably say, you know, maybe he's in hell. Maybe he's burning in hell. But I believe in God and I don't know that, you know, he could have asked for forgiveness and the way I believe, if he asked for forgiveness before he died for everything that he'd done, then, no, he may not be in hell. And that's hard for me to deal with, too. I'm taught that, well, if he asks for forgiveness, he gets to go to heaven. And then that's the part where I struggle with spirituality and go, no, he cannot be sharing the same heaven as my mom. Kenneth Bianchi declined to be interviewed for this podcast. Since 1989, he's filed more than two dozen appeals, lawsuits, and petitions for his release, seeking to void his confessions and overturn his murder convictions. Courts have consistently rejected his claims. In 2010, Bianchi attended his parole hearing by telephone. A parole commissioner asked him if he felt any remorse for his crimes. Bianchi said he didn't understand the question. So that was the crime, and uh, that's the story, sordid and ugly. We met Veronica Compton in an earlier episode of this podcast. 
Kenneth Bianchi recruited her to commit a copycat crime in Bellingham, Washington, in order to give himself an alibi. A jury convicted Veronica of attempted murder. She served 23 years in a Washington State women's prison for the crime. Veronica spent years trying to sort out why she agreed to Bianchi's scheme. She got off drugs and alcohol and wrote a book about her life behind bars and her thoughts on how corrections agencies could do more to rehabilitate women. She married an instructor in the prison's education program, and they had a daughter. The state parole board granted her a release in 2003 and described her as a role model for other prisoners. Do not cover for any asshole that's going to have you do a crime for them. No, no, no. No, 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 no. You are not responsible for anyone else's problems. They're responsible for their own problems. I asked Veronica what other women could learn from her encounter with Kenneth Bianchi and everything that followed. You need to focus on yourself and get the hell away from anyone that wants to hurt and manipulate you like that to do a crime. It's not worth it. Do not do it. Do not do it. Do not do it. And I would tell anyone that listens to this, if you're in a situation at all like mine, wrap the motherfucker out. I interviewed Mika Mercado in Southern California in February 2020, just a few weeks before the pandemic pretty much closed things down. So I did not literally think about it until we stepped in here. The night before our interview, I confirmed the logistics with her by email and suggested she make some notes of the points she wanted to emphasize or the questions she wanted to ask. I had my own list, but I wanted to be sure we covered anything on her mind. She ignored my advice. I disconnected from it because if I didn't disconnect from it, then I might not have shown up. 30 years ago, I closed my file on this case. Mika lives with it every day. Like, I really think that she would be really proud of me that I'm able to, you know, speak for her. My biggest thing is, like, humanizing her. Like, my mom went back to school. She was going to school. She was talented. She was working. She was being independent. She was making things happen for herself. She wanted something out of her life, you know? In spite of, like, all that and everything that she was going through, like, she didn't give up. Like, she was still trying. You know, definitely I know that I have her strength because she had to be strong. Had to be. I think that she definitely would be proud of me because it's like, in spite of, like, I'm still here. I made it. I made it through, and I'm going to continue to make it, and I keep trying to make it. Since we recorded this interview, Mika has connected with members of her father's family. Her son graduated from college with a degree in computer science. She tells me he's doing great. And Mika completed a nursing credential program and is working in the healthcare field. I am my mother's daughter, and that's great. That's okay. I just have hopes that, you know, that she's looking down and this makes her proud and that just telling my mother's story, speaking of who she was, what she was, she wasn't just that prostitute, she wasn't just that black girl, she was a person, she was a daughter, she was a sister, 
She was a granddaughter. You know, she was a human being. And, you know, she was my mother. Hillside is a production of Last 5% Media. This podcast was created, written, and hosted by me, Joseph Rodota. Our executive producers are Chris George and Joaquin Alvarado. Caitlin Bruce is our producer. Adam Melian is our research director. Cheryl Duvall is our editor. Julie Checkaway and Robert Saladay served as consulting producers. Our sound engineers are Jeremy Dalmas and Craig Thomas. Craig is also our composer. Edgar Guerra designed our logo and website. Special thanks to the Center for Inquiry Libraries in Buffalo, New York, the Hoover Institution Archive at Stanford University, the Mainsfield Library at the University of Montana, and the Warnicke Ranch Artist Residency. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. For information about this episode, visit our website, hillsidepodcast.com. And thanks for listening.